certainly, as we look at this, he is, he is an unstoppable God. What is omnipotence? Well, the Latin means omni, meaning all, uh, potent, omnipotent, meaning all power. And so that's a, a nice little uh, quick definition, but it does lack a little bit of uh, information because uh, someone will say, well, if God's all-powerful, then why does uh, God allow disease? And if He can stop disease, and if He can stop all the suffering in the world, why doesn't He? Then He's not all love. And so uh, that's why a better definition is this. And if you haven't written it down, I hope that you will, if you're following us online, what is omnipotence? It is that He has all the power He wills to have over all things, at all times, and in all ways. And that's why that is such a good and important definition, because He doesn't will to do certain things. And because He doesn't will, then it solves that conundrum that so many uh, try to paint God into. But the fact is, God's not concerned about people's uh, questioning Him. But we say what the elders in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 17, saying, we give thee thanks, listen to this, O Lord God Almighty. So he's saying, O omnipotent God, because you were, you are, and you are to come, and you have taken to thee thy great power, and you have reigned. Notice that last little phrase. God has power and He reigns. That's why the doctrine of sovereignty and the doctrine of omnipotence are sister doctrines. They work together. God reigns. I believe that and I trust that. And because He reigns, thank God, He has the power to reign. And that's why we know that in order to be sovereign, He has to be omnipotent. And if He's omnipotent, thank God He's sovereign. I'm glad that the Democrats aren't in power. And for that matter, I'm glad that the Republicans aren't the only ones in power. I'm glad that God is in charge of everything here today. The great uh, late uh, 20th century evangelical writer A.W. Tozier said it this way. He said, God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible plentitude of power and an influence that is absolute. The fact is, God's will, His omnipotence is both positive and negative. Because He is omnipotent, there are certain things He won't do. For example, and we have a list for you here, there's at least four things that God won't do. First of all, He will never deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13. Number two, He will never lie. God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He cannot be tempted to evil, James 1 and verse 13, and he cannot change his nature, Numbers 23 and verse 19. And so by just way of introduction, we remind ourselves that just because God can't do something doesn't mean that he won't do something, because by his very nature, he won't do these things. Now we are approaching the Christmas season. I noticed that even a few weeks ago, we were in Costco and they had all the Christmas decorations out and it was 100 degrees outside. I said, honey, I guess it's Christmas time. But uh, man, this is amazing. And we've had nine months of summer, I think, this year. I don't know. But uh, you know, um, during this Christmas season, we're going to start hearing uh, all kinds of great songs like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, and, and uh, you know, who's that coming down the chimney? And great, wonderful hymns of the faith like that. And uh, 
But no, the truth is, we'll be going through the stores, and it used to be when you could walk through them all. It always would amaze me that people be going along with these good feelings and having these amazing hymns play like Joy to the World. But listen to the, that part of that uh, song, Joy to the World, the Savior, what? Reigns. He reigns. I'm glad he's in charge. The last part of that verse says, he, what? Rules the world with truth and grace. Here we have this great testimony of the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God. And of course, who can forget the great oratorio by um, Handel? And we tried to do it once as a church, and I don't know how good we did, but it was, it was still amazing. But we did that great uh, parts of that uh, oratorio, you know, the Handel's Messiah, you know, that part of that says, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And oh my goodness, you talk about sending you to heaven. But that is a great reminder that the church of the past reminded itself often that God is all-powerful. And I think somewhere along the line, we've lost that. And I will say that if in this matter of climate, which we're going to be talking about today, nature, this matter of, uh, you know, the, the world and the earth, Christians are buying into the concept that we can change the world. We can change the climate. We can, somehow we can uh, change nature. Folks, I promise you, no human can change the climate. That is purely in God's hand. That is an almighty God who is over this nature. And that's what we're going to prove this morning. And so uh, make sure you uh, get, a, get this one on tape or send a podcast to somebody. Or for those of you that are listening, make sure you call grandma right now and say, get on. Or it's not grandma. Call your granddaughter and say, you need to listen to this right now because pastor's going to talk about this stuff that uh, is so uh, grabbing the world's mindset and, and even many Christians. And so this morning, we're going to talk about God's power over nature, over darkness, over light. Let's pow. Father, we come before you and we praise you and honor you. I thank you for your amazing word. And Lord, uh, I just, uh, I couldn't stop putting verses into this message. And yet, Lord, I pray that somehow uh, the abundance of verses won't uh, just uh, overwhelm us. But Lord, it will just add to the depth of who you are. And I pray that every mind, Lord, whether in this room or out, that God will just uh, gather together on the power of uh, what a great God you are. Uh, teach us, oh God, uh, help us. Father, as a church, we are facing a decade, Lord, a, a new era, and we thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 8, please. We'll be reading verses 23 through 27, and then we're going to pause for a moment and have a very long introduction, but it's on purpose because uh, we need to establish some things. And so uh, let's go to chapter 8 and verses 23 to 27. Let's go ahead and read that out loud, and uh, we'll be reading from the King James Version here. All right, you got that? You can follow on the overhead there, but I think it'd be good to kind of put our minds together. I think it's good for your own ears to hear your own voice or maybe the person next to you. All right, let's uh, read it together. Ready? Beginning in verse 23. And when he was entered into his ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, for we perish. And he saith unto them, 
Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, bear with me, but listen closely. Don't let your mind wander, all right? Your, uh, your roast beef's going to be all right, uh, hopefully. Uh, so uh, uh, hang in there with me because we got a long introduction, and then we'll hit it hard, okay? Now, God gave mankind dominion over the world. Uh, I didn't say men, I said mankind. God gave humans dominion. That means we are to be king over this earth. That is, we are to rule nature. So now I'm just a few minutes into the message, and already I have turned off a whole lot of people. <laughs> that is, a whole lot of people who misunderstand this, under, this truth. And that is that there is a whole lot of folks out there that have the idea that mankind, humans, are not, do not have dominion. But God very specifically said we do have dominion. Listen to Lynn White. Lynn White uh, is a liberal theologian. She wrote an essay entitled the, and, the Historical, and maybe uh, while the title doesn't say it, but she could say it, The Historical Christian Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And so here's her uh, uh, proposition, and that is that Christianity is an anthrocentric, anthropocentric, meaning uh, mankind-centered uh, uh, um, kind of faith, since Christianity states very clearly that mankind has dominion, then actually uh, Christianity by its nature is responsible for our so-called ecological crisis. And that's got to be good news for President Trump this morning, that it's not his fault. It is the Christian's fault that uh, this world is in such a mess that it is. But uh, Here's her point in that because we have dominion, then we have ruined the world. We felt like it was ours to just use and abuse, and uh, totally uh, not what Scripture teaches. God told Adam and Eve to be a steward of the environment, and, they, and we know that it is our responsibility. And yet, um, some have uh, misguided people have said Christians uh, are the worst at the ecology, and that is absolutely uh, the, that is the, the furthest from the truth. The fact is, a Bible-believing Christian is the best one for the ecology because they know that this world has been given to us to use. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, 26 through 28 says that we have been given. He even uses that word. God, God said, you have been given dominion. And so, because we've been given dominion, we have a responsibility to rule this world. Uh, John Wesley, the great reformer, said that creatures were made, all creatures were made for human beings. What? Oh, man, that would blow away every university uh, teacher right there. What? What are you saying? You're saying that all the animal kingdom are made for humans? They're just made for themselves, or they, they just evolved for themselves. No, they were made for the use of mankind. Horses were made so I could ride that horse, or not me, some people ride them, but uh, those things and me don't agree for sure. But uh, they are made for our use. Calvin, the great uh, 
teacher said that everything is ordained for the use of mankind. Well, since Adam and Eve are our progenitors, they're the beginning of this whole thing, they have been given dominion. Unfortunately, they lost dominion. They gave up the right to rule when they bought into Satan's lie. And though we are not um, we are sad about that. fact is, we would have done the exact same thing. God then sanctioned this earth. So the earth that they were given is different than the earth that we have. We have a sanctioned earth. We call it a curse. Those in the theological world call it, and Christians call it a curse. This world is under a curse. And I'll tell you something, it looks pretty good for being under a curse, at least uh, a lot of parts. And so, um, thank God for this uh, dominion that we've been giving. And yet, this world has so many troubles. That's why this earth has earthquakes. That's why this earth has uh, fires. That's why this earth has floods and drought and uh, you name it. Uh, this earth has been sanctioned by God. It is an earth with all kinds of issues. God said, you're going to still have dominion. It's just going to be by the sweat of your brow now. Hallelujah, that curse is going to be reversed. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. We know that the whole creation or creature groaneth. All of God's creation is groaning. Here, the great apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit lets us know that earth is like a woman that is pregnant. It's going to change. Hallelujah. Right, ladies? Amen. You're going to give birth. I mean, no one ever didn't that was pregnant. I mean, it, goes, it comes to the end. But thank God, the creation, however, there's lots of pains. It is in pain. Now, God unfolds a great redemptive plan. We all know that God's redemption for mankind is based in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. But a lot of times we forget that God's Redemptive plan not only includes humans, it includes the earth. God is not only redeeming mankind, He is going to redeem this earth. That's why He's going to make it a new earth, and God is uh, in the redemption plan. And thank God there's coming a day when we're going to see what it would have been like in Adam and Eve's time. That's called the millennium. That's a time when the very earth we're here. I mean, it's going to be, uh, have been remade a bit because of the horrible things that go on during the tribulation period. But the very dirt that we're on, it's going to be the same dirt that they have during the millennium. And yet, instead of living to be uh, 70 or so, you might live to be 700 during that time if you were a person who, a human that went into the, uh, into the millennial time. But God is going to remind us that, and He's going to show us that this is what it's like when God redeems something, and it's going to be great. There's not going to be disease. There's not going to be war. It's going to be an incredible, wonderful thing. Folks, I'm, I'm just telling you that things aren't going to be the way they are right now, and I think we ought to say amen to that. I mean, folks, amen. God is changing. He is redeeming not only people. He is redeeming creation. He is redeeming nature. He is redeeming the climate. And in the meantime, the climate is in God's very capable hands. Let's go to Psalm 136 verse 4. To him who alone, alone doth great wonders, because he's so merciful, his merciful endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him 
that stretched out the earth above the waters. For his mercy endureth forever. It kind of sounds like to me God's in charge of the atmosphere and the sea. To him that made the great lights and his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night, his mercy endures forever. And what's the summary? A couple verses down, verse 12. With a strong hand and a stretched out arm, by his mercy, he is in control of this world. Folks, if it weren't for the mercy of God, we'd all die in a flood. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, we'd all be burnt up with the sun. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, thank God for his mercy. Now, folks, if we try to deal with nature without thinking about God, we will become humanists. And humanists, the humanist agenda, have the idea that we can affect climate change just by something we do. Folks, humanity is not very good at anything constructive. We're pretty good at destructive things, and we're pretty good at atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs and all that kind of stuff, but only God has power. Psalm 62 verse 11 says, power belongs to God. No human has the power to change this world. It's just not going to happen. God has the power for that. That's why he said uh, in Job 26 and 14, the thunder of his power, who can understand? That's why the psalmist said in 79 verse 11, the greatness of thy power. That's why the great prophet Nahum, who doesn't get much uh, love, but I'll tell you one thing, what a great prophet. The Lord is great and in power. Isaiah, the major prophet said, it is the Lord God is, has everlasting power. God is in charge of everything. You know, one little uh, teaspoon of water, for example, one little teaspoon of water has millions and billions and trillions of atoms in it. What is an atom? Basically, an atom is just a little energy ball. That's all, I mean, it's just a minute little energy power. God is in charge of that. But God is not only in charge of the water, which has trillions and trillions of atoms. He's in charge of this earth that all the atoms. He holds it all together, not only this earth, but the solar system, this universe. Every universe, wherever it is, God holds it all together. Folks, I'm telling you something, that's omnipotence. The omnipotent God holds everything together. And so uh, in our passage here today, we're going to see how God has power over uh, the sea. He has power over the wind. God is a great God of power. And so let's, uh, let's go to this passage now, uh, Matthew chapter 8. We'll see four parts to it. First of all, let's see some things to consider, some facts to consider. Verse 23, and when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. Here he was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the ministry was going well, but it had gotten to the point where he was being pressed to the point where he couldn't really minister very effectively. It's kind of a point of diminishing return. And so he said, guys, uh, we got to go. They were on the eastern, uh, uh, excuse me, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. They said, let's go on over to the other side. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a big giant lake. In fact, it's a little smaller, basically, than Lake Tahoe. Have you ever been to Lake Tahoe? And you'd look across there, maybe south to the north, uh, the Sea of Galilee is actually uh, shorter than that, and it's a little less wide. 
And so uh, here he is. Jesus is going to go to the other side. You can actually see the other side. And so he gets in a small ship. The Bible said, by, my dad would remind me that a small boat is not a ship, but the King James Version uses that term. It's, we're not talking about a big luxury liner here or a battleship, all right? We're talking about a, a little boat. In fact, they actually found one of these boats. Uh, there was a, a drought in 1986 in the sea, in the area of, uh, there of Israel, and they found a, a boat that dates back to even uh, before Christ, but uh, they've, uh, the archaeologists have since then called it the Jesus boat. But um, the Sea of Galilee receded, and so the, here's this boat. Uh, it was uh, made out of cedar, 27 feet long, 8 feet wide. It were planks joined together by pegged mortise and tenon joints with nails. I have no idea what that means. But um, anyway, they were joined together. It had a flat bottom that allowed it to fish close to the shore. So uh, you can imagine, therefore, a 30-foot boat. It had uh, places for four people to row. They were kind of uh, staggered off. And so there they were. Now it says that his disciples followed him. What does that mean? Well, it means that there were several boats. So there was a small flotilla of boats, which wasn't uncommon. His disciples, we're not talking about the 12. The word disciple just means a learner. And the context will let us know whether it's those great 12 disciples or whether it's just a group of people who are committed to learn. By the way, that's what I want to be, amen? I want to be a disciple of Christ. I want to be a learner. Well, they were, I'll tell you what, they were definitely going to get a lesson today. Look what it says in verse 24. So they get in this little Jesus boat, 30 feet uh, long, about 8 feet wide. Several people can fit in there. It's made out of cedar and uh, put together. Uh, and uh, with a flat bottom, but it also had a, a mast. So um, one can only wonder, you know, that thing could easily, I'm sure the mast wasn't too high, or else that thing would have just tipped right over. And so there they were. So the, the stage is set. They're going to go to the other side, verse 24, and there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Now the word tempest. Uh, this, uh, this word is the word uh, uh, seismos, which we would get the, you know, seismic. Now the Sea of Galilee is interesting. So imagine with me basically the Lake Tahoe. There is right next to it Mount Hermon, 2,000 feet high. And the, the way the wind would work is it would come down over the top, that northern wind would come, there's a prevailing northeast wind, it would come over the top of Mount Hermon. The side of Mount Hermon is very steep, and so it would pick up speed, that wind, it would then hit that warm water, and it would create these incredible waves, and it would happen just like that. In fact, there's a certain... Um, uh, there's a certain weather pattern, kind of like the Diablo winds, called the Sharkaya. In fact, uh, in 1992, there's a, the Tiberius storm, by the way, in Israel. Lake uh, Sea of Galilee is called Tiberius. And so they said that the winds were uh, 60 miles an hour, and there were 30-foot high waves. So you can imagine this top of the ceiling here, 20-something feet. So we're talking waves above the height here. In a small little 30-foot boat, and wind blowing. Now, that was a, that was, but let me tell you how bad this was. It says it was seismos. There was a tempest. So the idea is that the earth was shaking. 
So it may not just been a weather pattern. It might have just been an earthquake. And uh, so you get a, and this is kind of a big bowl. It goes below sea level. So imagine taking a bowl full of water and shaking it. So that what was going on. The wind was blowing, come over Mount Hermon. The uh, waves were getting big. Uh, it just incredible what was going on. So, and to tell you how terrifying it was, they said, behold. <laughs> when a sailor looks at the things and says, oh my, you know it's time to get scared. And so they, there's, and then it, but notice what it says, but he, Jesus, was asleep. What? He was asleep? I mean, he must have been bouncing around inside of that thing, you know, and soaked to his skin with water. He was asleep. Now, if you go to some of the other parallel passages, it says he was asleep on a pillow. I'm sure it wasn't really a pillow, but it was probably some soft rigging or maybe sails or something. They probably had taken the sails down. And Jesus was just as sleeping as well as he could. I mean, first of all, that you could sleep in a boat, a small boat, with all that's going on is amazing. Second of all, that you could sleep in a storm. I mean, can you imagine? Just absolutely crazy. So there he was. He was asleep. Folks, that scene itself ought to just say, omnipotence of God. The creator of the world is not worried in our storms. He is just right there. He is in that storm. It is just a blowing, but he is not upset at all. And so... Um, the sailors uh, need to ask Jesus something, and we'll see what they do in just a moment. But I mean to tell you, it was just incredible. They were upset. Martin Luther said that God and the devil take opposite tactics in regards to fear. Everybody was afraid in that day. The Lord allows us to become afraid so that he can relieve his power or he can relieve our fears by his power. And the devil is the opposite. He makes us feel secure in pride so that later we're overwhelmed with our fear. And so Jesus was allowing them to become fearful so that he could display his power. The devil wanted them to be fearful so that they would be overwhelmed, a consideration. Now, second of all, we see an agitation and boy, were they agitated. Look at verse 25. And his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We perish. Now, folks, when sailors start asking a preacher how to sail a boat, you got to know they're agitated. And especially Jesus. I mean, uh, he uh, probably was not any kind of a ship guy. He uh, was from Nazareth, which is an inland city. He was, his dad was a carpenter. Um, now, unless that boat was breaking apart, I don't know what he would, would know to do. But it says they awoke him. <laughs> they awoke the Lord. Kind of funny thought. But they awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We perish. I think I want to I awake the Lord once in a while, don't you? But God's not asleep, I'll promise you. And so they had run out of human solution. What they need was an unstoppable God to weigh in on the matter. The scene could have not been any more dramatic, unnerving, unsettling. Reminds me of the sea captain who heard uh, that uh, this sea captain was always, uh, he was an atheist, and he was always just bragging about it. He said he didn't believe in God. Uh, religion was for the weak people. 
One day he got washed overboard, and characteristically, as people do, they cry out for God, even atheists do. They hauled him in, and they said, I thought you didn't believe in God. He said, well, if there isn't a God, there ought to be one for times just like this. And that's uh, what these guys were going through. They were, they were atheists maybe, but boy, right now they were interested in an answer. But I want you to notice what they said, which is 50% true. Lord, save us, we perish. Now, that was a 50% accurate prayer. The first part, Lord, save us. Good job. Amen. I'm proud of you guys. Lord, save us. The second part was, we perish. Uh, two, two thumbs down. You have no idea you're perishing. They were insinuating that God was asleep. And God didn't know anything that was going on. Now, I will say they were sort of correct. Because we are perishing. We all perishing, folks. <laughs> that is a fact. We are perishing now. But they thought it's right now. We are perishing right now. But we get a little sense of really what they were saying from one, a parallel passage in Mark chapter 4 and verse 38. They awake him saying, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Ah, so this is a little different. Not only were they saying, we perish. Now they are saying, you do not care about us. Guys, and isn't that, uh, isn't that just like we humans? Um, they just were saying, God doesn't care about me. Where is God? But it's not uncommon. Humans often do that. The great David did that in Psalm 10 and verse 1. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? David let his emotions get too big, and he said, God, you don't care about me. You know, you're just, you're just standing there in the, in the sidelines and not getting involved. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus' reply is classic, verse 26. And he said unto them, why are you fearful? Why are you fearful? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea really why I'm fearful. <laughs> Just because it is pitch dark outside, just because there are 30-foot waves, just because the boat is full of water, just because I see some hungry sharks out there or barracudas or whatever's in the Sea of Galilee, just because I'm going down for the third time, oh, I don't know. I mean, really, I, you know, I, forgive me for being so human here, but why are you fearful? And maybe the emphasis on you. Why are you so fearful? You, my disciples, you, the ones who have seen me do mighty works, you, why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? And so it says, he arose and he rebuked the winds. Fearful. Now, the word fearful is not just healthy fear. Now, folks, there is a healthy fear, a healthy fear of you know, spiders or snakes or things like that. Um, and I, I do not like snakes for sure. And I, every time I'm around those, we, they kind of, they just get, they just make creepy to me. And yet, uh, I, hopefully that's not a sinful uh, uh, fear, but a real, a good fear, a healthy fear, sinful fear. This word here is actually the word for sinful fear. It's the same word as used in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8, where God says the fearful and the unbelievers are the ones 
who will have a part in a lake which burned fire and brimstone, meaning cowardly. Cowardly fear. So Jesus said it this way. He said, why are you so cowardly? Why are you cowardly? This storm is in the hand of God. He is in charge of nature. How much better had it been for them to say what David said in Psalm 31, verse 15? My times are in thy hands. My times are in your hands. Rather than, God, I'm, we're dying here and you don't care, why not just simply say, my times are in your hands. You do what you think best. Think it through. Psalm 46 and verse 2, therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling. Notice what it says, we will not fear. We will not I, we choose not to fear. And it's a choice. Because we look at this thing and say, you know what? God's in charge of nature. God's in charge of everything. If he wants to have us in a storm, and if he wants us to die and go to heaven, amen. If he wants us to stay here and get through the storm, then amen. I don't want to go through any pain, obviously. We're human. We don't want that. And that's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, he said, you know, I'm in a strait betwixt two. He said, this thing really, I'm often in a question marks in my mind. He said, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. I really want to die. <laughs> now, this was not a, a hope for suicide here. This was a godly sense that my times are in God's hands. And heaven is nothing to fear. Now, the process is not maybe fun, but the fact is, we will not fear, though the earth does whatever it does in the midst of a storm, we will not fear. And that's, isn't that what we tell our children? They come into our room and the thunder, you know, shakes the windows and they come running in, Daddy, what's going on? Hey, that's just God. We will not fear. And yet we're the same ones that are all afraid when this happens and when that happens. Folks, my times are in the hands of God. We will not fear. I'm in a straight betwixt two. If God wants me to go, then amen. If God doesn't want me to go, we're not talking about apathy. We're talking about just a, a, a settled sense that God is in charge. He is omnipotent over nature. Paul said, and look what he said in this next verse. He said, having this confidence, here's the confidence I have, that to depart, to be with Christ is good, but I am believing that God is going to make me abide so I can continue with you. I have this confidence in me that if I die, praise God. If I live, praise God. I'm in a win-win situation knowing that we serve an omnipotent God who is over nature. A consideration, an agitation, and now notice a domination. Now we're going to see God flexes mighty muscles. Look at verse 26. Then he saith unto them, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose. And that's guaranteed. God always will arise. He always will arise. That's why David said in the Psalms, let God arise. Let God arise. Let God arise and step into this situation. Let God arise. We need God to arise. Then he arose. And he will. In every storm, God will arise. And what did he do? He rebuked 
the winds. Hmm, that's quite a powerful word, rebuke. That kind of sounds like a deeper sense here, right? Rebuke? Why would he rebuke a wind if, hey, that almost sounds demonic. You know, there's a, is there a, denom, a de- demonic nature to these winds? Well, we know that in the book of Job, uh, somehow Satan was given power to create a great wind and it uh, uh, took out some of Job's children's. I mean, it was a terrible thing. So sometimes, yeah, there are, God allows these things, but it's still under God. He rebuked it. And then it says there was a great calm. A great calm. The, uh, the actual word there means hush. Can you imagine going from dark, 30-foot perhaps waves, 40, 50-mile-an-hour winds, to, as, to calm? That's what the word is. Actually, as calm as a summer morning. I mean, that water just slick, just, just as, as calm as you could be. I mean, that's power. I was reading about the power of a, of a hurricane. I read about it several months back ago, and I kind of looked it up. They said that a normal hurricane, just an average hurricane, you know, an average hurricane has 600 terawatts of power. One terawatt is enough to power 20 million homes. One terawatt, 20 million homes, an average hurricane is 600 of those terawatts. Now, I'm telling you what, that's a lot of power swirling and energy going on. Folks, with just one phrase, omnipotent God took 600 terawatts, 1,000 terawatts, and just said, that's it, shut it down. He just flipped the switch, and it went down. That's what God does. That's incredible power. That is incredible power. He commands the rains and they fall. He speaks and the winds obey him. That's our God. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. See now that I, even I am he, there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Sometimes we say, you know, God's in charge of the calm, but he's not in charge of the hurricanes. Folks, we can never divorce nature from God. Somehow people have the idea that nature's just kind of this other thing. Mother nature and God. God is interested in the moral things, but he's not over nature. Folks, God is over nature as well. That's why David said in Psalm 147 verse 15, he sendeth forth his commandment upon the earth. His word runneth very swiftly. Look at verse 16. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth ice like morsels. Verse 18, he sendeth out his word. He causeth the wind to blow and the waters to flow. Folks, God's omnipotence is incredible and it's flawless. There's a sister doctrine to omnipotence of God and it's known as the omnicompetence of God. That is that God is not only omnipotent, but he's competent. He is flawless. God is flawless in what he does. When he sends wind, he sends just the wind, how he wants it, the snow like he wants it. God is absolutely incredible in what he does. What is our response? Our response is just to praise God. And someone would say, well, wait a second. Doesn't these hurricanes, don't these hurricanes and earthquakes, don't people die? Yes, they do. But in that, we submit to God. And we just simply say, God, you are omnipotent, 
and you are flawless. You do everything. You are incredible. That's the way you are. And I thank God for what he is, a submission to God. It is said that a man went into an exclusive art gallery. He went into this art gallery, and he was struck by an incredible, beautiful picture, a portrayal of Christ on the cross. He went there, and he was looking at that picture, and as he was looking into the face of Christ, a guard came by and said, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He said, it's amazing. It's just striking. He said, you know, if you want to see the real beauty of this picture, he said, you have to actually bend down. He said, the artist actually created the picture to be seen from below. And so that man kind of bent down a little bit, and he said, you're right, it's amazing. It's so much more real and beautiful. The guard said, you actually need to go down even further. So the man squatted almost as far as he could, and he looked up, he said, that is absolutely incredible. And then the guard, motioning with his flashlight, he said, if you will get all the way down, you will see such a picture of Christ as you've never seen. And so that man got on his knees and then laid on the ground and looked up. Tears began to stream down his face as that artist had painted into that picture this incredible thing going on, this all the beauty and the glory of God in that beautiful picture. He was able to see it when he was on his face. And really, you know, we as humans, we are looking for God to bring something into our life. And, you know, God is all the time bringing nature into our life and creation, and he's blowing, and he's bringing all these things. And if we would just humble ourselves, you know, God, I don't understand why some people live, some people die, but you're in charge of it all. You are omnipotent over it all. I submit, and I realize that you have a redemptive purpose. When you look up, you'll see Jesus on that cross. And then finally this morning, not only a consideration and an agitation and a domination, now we're going to see what all of this was an indication of. Look at verse 27. When the men saw that, they marveled, saying, what manner of man is this? Well, that's the problem. He's not just man. He is God in the flesh, that even the winds and the sea obey him. You know what's more ominous than being in a storm this morning? It is realizing that you're standing in the presence of the God of the storm. And when you're in a boat and it just seems like creation and nature itself is affecting your life, we look around and realize that God is in the boat. He may appear to be asleep, but he's not. He is perfectly in charge, although he's inactive. It doesn't mean he's not doing something. When we realize who God is, when we humble ourselves, then we realize God is at work. Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips when he was in the presence of God. When Daniel understood he was in the presence of God, Daniel chapter 10, he began to shake and fall into a heap. His mouth was frozen. with He couldn't hardly speak because he was in the presence of God. How do we understand hurricanes? How do we understand fires? How do we understand floods? How do we understand all this? We just cover our mouth and submit and say, you were in charge, God. I, I don't, all I can say is, this is not mother nature. This is not just earth. This is God sending his wind one place 
and sending a calm another. It's Jesus asleep. It's Jesus standing up and calming. That's what he does. God has the power to do whatever he wants. We sing the song, we praise the almighty power of God. We sang it a few moments ago, uh, how great thou art. When we walk through the hills and we see this, how great thou art. Folks, when we rise up in the morning, God, you are great. While I was sleeping, you kept my heart beating. You put everything out there. You kept all the air out there. God is in charge. Mankind, I'm afraid these brain-dead liberals have the idea, you know, that we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that we're not to be good stewards of this earth. But the fact is, folks, all of this earth is in God's hands. He just does what he wants. He brings heat. He brings water. He brings snow. We've already seen all that. We can't do that. That is God. If I believe in God's omnipotence, then I must surrender earth to him. I must surrender nature to him. He does it all. He takes care of it all. And I can trust God with that. You say, how do I do it? You just simply say, well, God, you're, you're big. You're great. I submit to you. And I, I with wonder say, how is it that you, even the winds, obey you? Well, I got good news for you. Someday Jesus is coming back and he's going to sell it all. It's going to be a beautiful earth. He's going to redeem creation and we're going to be able to walk along. And those of us who are living in this era, we thank God we won't have these physical bodies. We'll have this new body, but we'll be able to see in this earth and we'll be able to see a beautiful redeemed creation because God is omnipotent. I close with this little story reminding us that an omnipotent God, despite how it may seem, is in charge of the wind, he's in charge of whatever happens. It was a young art student. His assignment from his college art professor was to create a picture that typified peace, the most beautiful, peaceful setting possible. All of the students launched into their project with gusto. Some would paint a beautiful, tranquil lake. Others would picture a beautiful meadow scene. But they all had their idea of what peace was. One young student furiously was working on his piece. The college professor came by and looked at it and was surprised because it was coming towards completion. And he asked the young man, he said, um, are you, did you understand what I was uh, saying? He said, I sure did. Because as he looked at the picture, it had depictions of war. It had pictures of floods and of winds and of rain and of all kinds of dramatic conditions. He said, yes, I, I did. I understood. He said, well, I wanted you to depict peace. I mean, the most peaceful setting possible. He said, that's exactly what I did. He said, really? He said, I want you to look closer at the picture. And the teacher looked closer. And there in the middle of the picture was a picture of a tree. And in that tree was a little tiny bird. The wind is howling. The rain is blustering and dark and all these things going on. And that little bird just has its wings flapping and just chirping and happy as it could be. And he explained, he said, you know, peace is not 
the absence of all this stuff. It's just knowing that in the presence of the storm, if I'm here, then God's with me. If I'm carried away on God's wing, then my wings will just carry me to a place he wants me to be. It just really doesn't make any difference. I'm in the hands of an almighty creator God. And that was the picture he was trying to paint, that we're just little tiny birds with our little wings. And whether he puts us here and keeps us safe or whether he lets us fly away to some beautiful place, it's God. I'm in the hands of an almighty God. I can be at peace this morning because Jesus is in the boat. He is in the boat. And if he's in the boat, he can rebuke that sea anytime he wants. His plan is to redeem not only the creature, but creation itself. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. God, we thank you this morning.